a remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. November 22nd, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time at Niagara Falls. We're on the Rainbow Bridge between Canada and the United States. A vehicle packed with explosives has blown up. 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev and Tel Aviv. Do they have a long vowel too? Because... That's the zone where they hold all the wars. 11 p.m. in Moscow, 11.30 p.m. in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who move to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, sorry about that, 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, 9 a.m. in Auckland, a rather more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree and even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. Great to be back with you for our Eve of Thanksgiving show. Uh, As I said, an incendiary Thanksgiving on the Rainbow Bridge at Niagara Falls. The car exploded. Its two drivers are dead and a customs officer has been taken to hospital 
uh, with what are reported to be very light injuries. It's been designated a terrorist attack. And indeed, uh, from the pictures I've seen, the inferno is almost as impressive as that photograph of Joe Biden with his birthday cake. Uh, The Rainbow Bridge is... um, possibly the most famous U.S.-Canadian border crossing. It was dedicated by King George VI and uh, Queen and the Queen Mum, as uh, she later became, uh, dedicated by the King and Queen in 1939 and officially opened in 1941. I've crossed it many times by car and on foot back in the days when I required no further ID beyond my little, tatty, cardboard, small-town New Hampshire, handwritten, indeed hand-penciled, library card. Uh, But now uh, the governments of Western nations have so wrecked the most advanced societies in human history that we have exploding motor vehicles on what was once the longest undefended international frontier. Thank you to Andrew for pitching in last week. I was under the doctors at the Institut de Cardiologie in Montreal and indeed under the delightful Poulaine Quebec de Souche nurses, lovely ladies, notwithstanding all their needles, and uh, certainly very relaxing compared to the pro-Palestinian mobs uh, raging outside. Thanks to uh, all of you who've snapped up a Stein Online Liberty Stick. I sign and number each one. Uh, so don't delay. Order yours today. The uh, From steinonline.com, I think you can click on the picture at the very top of the page. Uh, the trial has been rescheduled for January 16th at the District of Columbia Superior Court. We shall see. Six decades ago, November 22nd, 1963, the President of the United States... John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated as his motorcade was crossing Dealey Plaza in Dallas. Once upon a time, uh, it was said that every American could remember where he was when he heard the news of the president's death. But time passes, and I would expect today's media observances to be uh, somewhat muted, lest they benefit JFK's nephew and current presidential candidate, RFK Jr., the first Kennedy uh, of whom they institutionally disapprove. I observe this anniversary as I observe the 50th anniversary and the 40th anniversary and down through the decades. History is selective. We remember moments, and because that moment in Dallas blazes so vividly, everything around it fades to a grey blur. So here's an alternative 60th anniversary from November 1963, 8 a.m., November 2nd, troops enter a Catholic church in Saigon and arrest two men. They're tossed into the back of an armoured personnel carrier and uh, are driven up the road a little ways to a railroad crossing. The APC stops, the pair are riddled with bullets and their mutilated corpses taken to Staff HQ for inspection by the Army's commanders. One of the deceased is No Din Diem, the 
president of South Vietnam. The other is No Din Nu, his brother and chief advisor. Uh, back in the White House, President Kennedy gets the cable and he's stunned when he had given tacit approval to the coup. The deal was that Diem was supposed to be offered asylum in the United States. Uh, but something had gone wrong. I use gone wrong in the debased sense in which a drug deal that turns into a double murder is said to have gone wrong. Uh, Kennedy had known the uh, South Vietnamese president for the best part of a decade. If he felt bad about his part in the murder of an ally, he didn't feel bad for long because within three weeks he too was dead. Looked at coolly. There seems something faintly ridiculous uh, about cooing dreamily over the one brief shining moment of a slain head of state who only a month earlier had set in motion uh, the events leading to the slaying of another head of state. Uh, two presidents died that November, uh, but the mawkish parochialism of the Camelot cult has obliterated the fact that the second bore responsibility for the death of the first. No eternal flame for that guy, just an unmarked grave. He's the Mary Jo Kopechny of the autumn of 1963, unhelpful to the myth. What goes around, comes around, doesn't have quite the same ring as one brief shining moment. Uh, I doubt very much that uh, unless you're a Vietnam scholar, you'll... Uh, remember the pros and cons of that coup, as it was argued in Washington through the summer and fall of 1963. They barely made sense at the time. And JFK's bewildered reaction to the Buddhist unrest earlier that year sums up the administration's grasp of the situation. Who are these people, said Kennedy? Why didn't we know about them before? Uh, Big Min, the general who led the coup, lasted two months before he was overthrown by another general. Uh, he moved to Thailand, where the American taxpayer picked up the tab, including for some expensive dental work. And as Ho Chi Minh observed, I can scarcely believe the Americans would be so stupid. Uh, yes, there was certainly a presidential assassination conspiracy afoot in the U.S., in the fall of 1963, in Washington, that is. And while we still speculate on the rationale for what happened in Dallas, what happened to that other president in Vietnam is still standard operating procedure. Ask President Yanukovych, toppled by Washington almost a decade ago with consequences Ukraine's Rapidly dwindling numbers of cannon fodder live with today. Ask President Gaddafi, dispatched by Hillary Clinton with a cynically banal, we came, we saw, he died, uh, with consequences not only the Libyans, but the European continent lives with today because those Libyan ports are now the principal launching point for the nightly tide of, quote, refugees into the European Union. Ask President Assad of Syria, who's still there because morons like John McCain thought he could distinguish between the biddable jihadists of ISIS. Who are these people? Why didn't we know about them before? And as a result, a gazillion Syrians wound up in Germany and Sweden to terrorize the prepubescent girls at 
public swimming baths. The Ghosts of November, 60 years on. Let us get to your questions. The uh, activity at the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls only happened uh, just before we came on air, but we have an awful lot of questions about it. Robert Stewart <laughs> directs us to breaking news. FBI responds to vehicle explosion at Rainbow Bridge on U.S.-Canada border. Yeah, FBI response. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's conflicting evidence as to whether the car was... I mean, I, I think at first it was reported that the car was coming from Canada to America. Uh since then, it's been reported that the car was going from America toward Canada, which is one reason why it pays to wait a while for the dust to settle to determine what's actually uh, happened. But it will be interesting to know whether the two lads in the car, who are now a million dust particles, uh, were, as is traditional, uh, lone wolves who'd been on the FBI watch list for three, four, seven years. Uh, Matt from upstate New York says, Terror struck a little too close to home today with the car bomb explosion at the bridge at Niagara Falls. Will the pro-Hamas protesters in both countries even blink an eye or will they celebrate it? Uh, <coughs> beg, uh, <coughs> oh, go. just give me a moment. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, point taken. We're, we're making assumptions that it's two fellas called Mohammed in the car, but generally self-detonating is the province of fellas called Mohammed. What has been interesting this uh, last month has been the great alliance of the Western left and the Islamic uh, jihadists on the streets of every Western city. There is a sort of glamour uh, there's a seductive glamour about violence. You see it everywhere, uh, especially among the young. You know, the the trusty fundy guys, the, the, the people who've never had, really had any worries in their life, they get turned on by violence. And the question is, once they've been turned on, what's going to turn them off? And, you know, here was a guy, uh, I don't know whether that was the driver's ultimate target. I would be surprised if the uh, the customs booth on the Rainbow Bridge was his ultimate target. Uh, but as even assuming it was, you know, the kind of people who are pro-Hamas are not bothered by people who try to blow up government facilities and government officials, because as they see it, uh, if you work for the United States government, you're complicit in all this uh, this kind of thing. Uh, Norman Fenton, uh, who many of you will have met on our Adriatic cruise and many more of you will have read uh, on uh, Twitter with regard to the uh, COVID and the vaccines and all that kind of thing. Uh, Norman Fenton says, what do you think of the hostage deal? This is the one where there's a so-called ceasefire in order to give time for Hamas to release the little old ladies and babies that it seized on October the 7th. 
Um, and Norman says, although not as bad as the one where Gilad Shalit was uh, exchanged for 1,200 hardcore convicted terrorists, surely any kind of concession to Hamas is terrible. Well, you you don't you you don't have to make the same considerations as the government of Israel does, uh, Norman. And you know they include things that don't make a lot of of, of sense. The uh, they, f- for example, it's it's been traditional in Gaza that when the Israelis drop a bomb, they alert everybody in the building they're going to drop the bomb on so that that they can all get out of time. Now, that obviously means that a lot of uh, women and children can scram in time, but it also means that a lot of Hamas commanders can scram in time. And although I think it was, I forget when it was, but they they changed the rules on that so that (laughs) they didn't in fact give them a heads up uh, so they could all get out of the building. Um, the government changed the rules, but the army refused, basically ignored the instruction and was still doing the, uh, giving them a heads up so everyone could get out of town. Uh, the, the, the government is doing that because it thinks it will get them a little bit better press on the BBC or whatever. And... You know, I don't I don't think that's true, but I can understand why if you're the Israeli government, uh, that might be a consideration you you uh, take into account. Israel has fewer and fewer friends in the world right now. Um, you saw if, if you're like one of these people who just gets pushed back and forth, like Justin Trudeau, Justin came out because he'd seen Joe Biden and Monsieur Macron and Rishi Sunak and all the rest of them. So he came out and talked quite butch in the immediate aftermath of October the 7th. And then uh, people started pointing out uh, the various number of Liberal Party seats in the Canadian Parliament. Uh, that would be vulnerable if the Muslim population in those seats turned against Justin. So he then did his disgraceful remarks from uh, whatever it was a few days ago. And, And that's... That's the position that a lot of Western leaders are in uh, are in right now. It's simple in 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 a democratic age. It's simple electoral arithmetic uh, to these people. So so we have a situation where Western leaders, as I said, I think it was last week or the week before, Western leaders are now analogous to uh, Mubarak and King Abdullah and all the Arab leaders. Uh, just uh, after 9-11 when they used to warn, look, you don't look, okay, I'm Hosni Mubarak and you think I'm just an ugly thug dictator. Believe me, you don't want to see the kind of guys you'd have to deal with if my crazy electorate got to elect the leaders they wanted. 
Uh, and that's basically the position that Rishi Sunak and Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron and, yes, Joe Biden are in right now. That, <laughs> that uh, Again, it's another phrase from post 9-11. You remember when the people used to say, oh, you don't want to annoy the Arab street. Oh, you've got to be very careful so you don't provoke the Arab street. And uh, simply from the name, you assume that the Arab street is uh, somewhere in Arabia. Uh, the Arab street must be in uh, Riyadh or uh, Amman or maybe Cairo. But no, now there is an Arab street in London and in Toronto and in New York. That's And, and on the Rainbow Bridge, there's an Arab street now going over the Niagara River uh, uh, connecting New York and Ontario. That's the bed we have uh, made for ourselves. So, So I think that's... It's not about, you know, there, there are considerations that you, you would that you would think uh, shouldn't have to be made. But I would not want to be in the in the shoes of the Israeli government, doesn't matter whether it's Netanyahu or anybody else, um, looking at the world right now and thinking, my God. You know, if you think we get a bad press today, what the hell is it going to be like after another 10 years of this? Uh, Patricia McCoy Carpin says, a day without you is a day without sunshine. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm usually here to rain on your parade, Patricia. Happy to have you back. Comments on supposed terror attack at northern border. Look, we, we did a story at Stein Online yesterday that caught my eye, and I think it's... Uh, symbolic. Uh, you can't import uh, tens of millions of people who utterly despise and loathe your society and everything it stands for. I mean, they like, you know, Western welfare checks. But other than that, they're not, they're not here for the free speech and the freedom of religion and any of that. You know that. There's no point, you know, I saw something today, some guy, he's a retired college professor or something, and he said, uh, here's the most important idea I could, uh, we, we, we need to be talking about today, reform Islam. God, I heard that 20 years ago. And, and, and 20 years ago, I responded to all that wanker talk uh, by saying, here's what you don't get. This new globalized uh, imperialist Islam is the reform. It's new. It's not. It didn't exist a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, uh, the British government sent not only sent out a Jew to govern Palestine. In other words, putting. Palestine's uh, Muslim population under an English Jew, but they did the same in uh, India, uh, as uh, we've talked about on, on this show before, where they sent the Marquis of Reading, a Jew, out to govern the largest number of Muslims uh, in the world. Uh, th this new uh, uh, transnational globalist Islam because Islamic globalism may be, uh, in the end, more effective than Davos globalism, that is the reform. So people talking about, oh, yes, you know, if only we could reform Islam. 
Yeah, the the moderate Muslim. Where is the moderate Muslim? Uh, how many moderate Muslims are there in Niagara Falls, New York? Uh, two? Were they the ones who blew up in the car? I did a joke in uh, America Alone. Um, I said, um, there's a dollar... Let me see if I can remember it. There's a dollar bill in the middle of the crossroads. And from... The four sides of the crossroads are approaching Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, uh, a moderate Muslim, and a hardcore jihadist. Who gets to the dollar bill in the middle of the crossroads first? The hardcore jihadist. Because the other three are all mythical creatures. Uh, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny and the moderate Muslim, who is more accurately described as a quiescent Muslim. Chris Davis says, Mark, I hope this finds you well. Good to have you back behind the microphone. And I wish you and your family a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, By the time you broadcast, the polls will be closing in the Netherlands and all being well, Hert Wilders and his Freedom Party will have topped them. Uh, coming off the back of Javier Millet's resounding victory in Argentina, are we seeing a renaissance of the national populism seen in 2016 with the Brexit and Trump wins? Or is it simply the last twigs clinging to the tree of hope in the face of a globalist tornado? <laughs> That's a... Uh, That's rather poetic, uh, Chris. I like that. Uh, Keep well, uh, says Chris. You you too. Well, look, uh, it's not a renaissance, is it? I mean, basically, you say 2016, Brexit and Trump. Well, they were the two major, uh, you know, countries in in the Western world and certainly certainly in the English-speaking world. So that's right at the core of the Western world. And with the best will in the world, I don't think you can say that about uh, Argentina or even uh, with, uh, with all due respect to my dear friend Ava Vladingerbroek, I don't think you can say that with the Netherlands. I mean, Heert Wilders has been making breakthroughs. I remember, I can't even remember what election this was now, 10, 15 years ago? It's a long time ago. It's a long time. If you go to Stein Online, you can get Heert Wilders' excellent book with an introduction by me. That's how far back... We go. It's well over a decade ago, that book. And uh, he's he's been put through the ringer. He, uh, he he says he's never seen the beginning or end of the movie because his police, his security detail, have to take him in the dark uh, into the movie theater after the movie started and they have to yank him out before it ends. That's how he lives because he's under constant death threats. And the uh, BBC, at whatever election that was, 10, 15 years ago, reported him as a fringe, a fringe candidate, even though he got more votes than the so-called mainstream. So maybe who's the fringe and who's the mainstream is no more than a reflection of which particular end of the telescope you're looking through. So we've been here before. And as much as I like to be optimistic, um, you know, uh, Georgia Maloney 
who everyone, including Ava and I, we were all excited about when George Maloney emerged as Prime Minister of Italy and then started doing things one wouldn't have expected her to do from the butchness of her campaign. And uh, that's that happens quite a bit too. And... Uh, I don't want to go too conspiratorial this early in the show, but I remember, uh, I think James Dellingpole's theory is that basically, you know, you can get elected to Parliament uh, on whatever platform you want, but that once you get into the Cabinet, once you get into the top league, uh, all these, uh, everybody, the, the deep state, the globalists, whatever you want to call them, they've got compromat on you. And uh, a word in your ear is all they have to do to persuade you to dial back all the butch rhetoric. I, uh, that's James's theory. It's not mine. Uh, but the, pro- the point here, and it's really the lesson of that story about the French village I was writing about yesterday, is we need to, we can't get excited. Oh, yes, he did. Uh, you know, uh, it's good. We, he's, uh, so-and-so came second place in this election and so-and-so came third, but, uh, you know, six points ahead of where they were last time in that election. We, we, this is going to slip past, what, what was it? I couldn't remember the English phrase uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, point de bascule. We are at a tipping point. We are at a tipping point in uh, Britain, a tipping point in Europe, a tipping point in North America, a tipping point in Australia, and we need to be moving the meter a lot faster. Uh, That's that's my uh, view on uh, that. We're going to take more questions, but I'm going to pause for a brief musical interlude because my voice is uh, running out a bit here. Um, It is, as I said uh, this day, the 60th anniversary of a presidential assassination. Do you know what JFK's favorite song was? Well, when people used to ask, he would tell them this. An odd choice. Doesn't sound like they focus grouped it. It's an old English folk air. Very old. But this version was brand new as he ran for president. Alas, my love, you do me wrong To cast me out discourteously When I have loved you so long
Jane Morgan, who uh, retired in 1973, although she did work as production assistant to her husband, Jerry Weintraub, when he produced the George Clooney, Brad Pitt remake of Ocean's Eleven. Miss Morgan will celebrate her century in five months' time and we look forward to celebrating it with her here at Stein Online. Back in 1961, Jane Morgan sang live to President Kennedy, but I don't know whether she included that number, Green Sleeves, supposedly written by Henry VIII for Anne Boleyn, but there's not a scrap of evidence for that. And uh, it always sounds uh, rather more Elizabethan uh, to me. Yet it hung around long enough to be President Kennedy's favorite song. Okay, one more bit of JFK Arcana, the presidential campaign song of 1960. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got high hopes 1960's the year for his high hopes Come on and vote for Kennedy Vote for Kennedy And we'll come out on top Oops, there goes the opposition girl Oops, there goes the opposition Oops, there goes the opposition girl pop. K-E-double-N-E-D-Y Jack's the nation's favorite guy Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got high hopes 
K-E-N-N-E-D-Y, Jack's the nation's favorite guy. Music by Jimmy Van Heusen, special lyrics by Sammy Khan, vocals by Frank Sinatra. I once asked uh, Sammy Khan over lunch why he'd spelt it out, and he said it was because he couldn't come up with a rhyme for Kennedy. And uh, then he ordered dessert and challenged me to produce a rhyme for Kennedy. And the only one I could think of was threnody, uh, a word which means a song of lamentation for the dead. And so K-E-N-N-E-D-Y, we play our threnody for Kennedy on the 60th anniversary of those terrible events in Dallas, November 22nd. 1963. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. It is 25 to 9, British summertime. Uh, not British summertime. What, uh, what am I doing? Uh, Greenwich Mean Time. 25 to 9, Greenwich Mean Time. A little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this very turbulent earth. Uh, let's get back to your questions. Patrick asks, Dear Mark, The presidential election victory of Javier Millet in Argentina feels like the best win since Trump's in 2016, or perhaps more precisely, since Rush guest host Jason Lewis, uh, his uh, house win in 2016. Yeah, uh, my old friend Jason Lewis. Uh, Actually, I think we had him on the show. He came on and talked about that tremendous victory. Like Lewis, Millet often spoke eloquently as a talk show host on the wisdom of Milton Friedman and the cruelty of socialism and communism. Yeah, I'm mindful of something uh, Bill Bennett said uh, when we were all at a dinner somewhere and, uh, you know, uh, us glib pundit types uh, were saying, why doesn't, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Why don't they do? And and uh, and Bill made the obvious point that uh, governing is uh, more difficult than pontificating. It's far easier to say the right things than to do the right things. Although you know, to be honest, in the world we live in now, where we've been doing the wrong things for so long. Hardly anyone even says the right uh, things anymore. Uh, nobody's perfect. I, if I sound a little cool on this <laughs> Argentine fellow, it's because he's he said that uh, the uh, uh, taking back the Falklands, the Falkland Islands, is going to be one of his big priorities. I mean, I, taking the Falkland Islands, they're not Argentine. They've never been Argentine. Uh, But taking the Falkland Islands is going to be his uh, big priority, and that is non-negotiable. Now, I don't think that's—go on, try it if you're that— uh, if you if you're that inclined, I don't think he's uh, going to be able uh, to do that. Uh, but it does make you wonder 
about whether there's, uh, as with so many leaders, that there's a gulf between the rhetoric and the action. Anyway, Patrick continues, yet perhaps even more impressive than the outcome was the form. The results were in on the same day. The presidential debates were carefully structured to allow a limited number of rebuttals from candidates with minimal interference from moderators. And the candidates were all capable of speaking articulately about substantive issues, i.e. no Fetterman's or Biden's. Perhaps Americans don't deserve a melee, given how we've let our structures and culture decay. But does his win give you cause for optimism? Look, uh, just about every country, that's from Patrick in Virginia, look, just about every country has a better system when it comes to election. You, you talk about elections and then the presidential debate. Um, so we'll go back to Mrs. Thatcher's famous line, first you win the argument, then you win the election. Well, how many times, you know, we have two-year presidential campaigns here. How many times in those two years... Do you have candidates who make the argument, right? Nobody makes the argument because because Congress isn't a proper parliament where they're all in there uh, jousting together. You don't have anything like that. You have that stupid bollocks you see on television where some guy comes out and reads a speech that's been written here for him by a staffer with another staffer sitting behind him so he's not in an empty shot. But that fixed camera, which was part of the deal allowing them to broadcast Congress, uh, creates the misleading impression that there are other uh, elected members in that chamber, and there's not. There's nobody. It's some guy talking to an empty room. Uh, and that's not a good way of uh, of uh, uh, honing your ability to speak extemporaneously about substantive issues. Then we have the stupid debates, of which by far the most stupid one uh, was the one at Fox News, where they had that uh, his Hispanic co-moderator, all of whose questions were basically about legalizing dreamers. So in other words... It's bad enough when we get to the presidential debates and basically, as famously occurred with Mitt Romney, uh, who suddenly realized he was debating not only Barack Obama, but also Candy Crowley of CNN, who, when Barack got a little bit winded and was on the ropes, she'd step in and, and, uh, and, and slug uh, Mitt in the solar plexus. Uh, that's one thing for the presidential debate. OK, Republican versus Democrat, plus a moderator who frames everything from the Democrat perspective. But why do the tosspots of the Republican National Committee agree to have intra-Republican debates between, you know, between hardcore populist and rhino squish between libertarian and social conservative. Why are inter-Republican debates also moderated, as in that ghastly Fox debate, also from a Democrat perspective? I mean, it was very weird. Even uh, my old chum Stuart Varney uh, was suddenly asking questions. I mean, I, I peered closely to see whether, in fact, it was Candy Crowley halfway through her transition. Um, but no, it appeared to be the real Stuart Varney uh, asking, weirdly asking questions, as I said, from the Democrat uh, perspective. So that's true. That's better 
in Argentina. And then we get to the election. And just to repeat my old line, you can't, it doesn't matter if you've got the best constitution in the world, if you've got the crappiest election system in the world. And all the signs are, you look at what's happening here. Argentina, we think of it, you know, Latin American banana republic and United States, a, uh, a long evolved constitutional republic. And maybe, maybe somehow while we were sleeping, they switched teams because uh, it's now the United States uh, that is doing its best to get the opposition leader put in jail uh, so that he's, he'll be on trial, actually, at the time of the Iowa caucuses. And, uh, and if that is not brazen enough, most of the things that en enable, most of the elements of the system that enable motivated persons in half a dozen deep blue cities in purple states to steal sufficient votes, all that stuff is still in place. The notorious Mr. J writes, Mr. Stein, what do you make of this recent trend toward elevating TV celebrities to high office? First Trump, then Zelensky, and now Millet of Argentina. And he's surely the wildest of the bunch. He makes the Donald look tranquilized and neutered. I have my doubts that he'll succeed in any manic libertarian revolution on the pampas, though. That's swamp ain't made for draining, it seems to me. The sclerotic bureaucracy and corruption might be too ingrained for easy cure. Small little aside, the change in the day of the Clubland Q&A gives the broadcast a whole new feel. For me, the Friday session felt like a trip with the boys to the pub. After a week's slog at the office, put it midweek and, well, it has a whole new vibration to it. Not worse, you understand, just different. It can still seem uh, like a trip with the boys to the pub. Uh, I do think we should uh, drink more during the show, particularly after a week like this uh, last week. Um, yeah, I don't really... <laughs> uh, I don't really approve of this idea of uh, you know celebrities in high office but i don't i don't think there's any doubt i mean if you if you take if you take the the trump phenomenon you know just go back 40 years uh you remember the way they thought it was ridiculous the way america elected ronald reagan a movie actor or a b movie actor as they put it. He wasn't actually a B-movie actor. He was in plenty of A-movies. Um, but you, they thought it was uh, absolutely absurd to put an actor in the White House. Uh, at that time, there was still a residual respect for the political class in the United States. Now we think actors are the greatest experts on, every, on anything. We're all interested to hear what Leonardo DiCaprio and George Clooney and all kinds of people have to say about this and, and that. Um, and at the same time, the... Uh, the the political class has diminished, and not just on the Democrat side. In the very first piece I wrote about Trump, this was just like a week or two after he came down that escalator. You know, we, we're told that Trump was almost a parody of the blowhard 
loud-mouthed celebrity. And his shows weren't, you know, Ronald Reagan can claim to have been in some pretty good movies with, with Trump. It's just, you know, lousy game shows and beauty pageants and whatever. And yet, as I put it in that first thing I wrote about Trump's candidacy, uh, whatever it was, 10 days after he came down the escalator, Trump was the only one who'd, uh, who'd introduced anything serious into the election campaign when he started talking about, you know, Mexico not sending its best and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think that's that's... That's the difference. All the other, I've, I've said this a thousand times, all the other candidates were just doing this softcore rubbish. Marco Rubio doing these moist, uh, sentimentalist, driveling ads about the need for a second American century, when in fact most Americans would like just what remains of their life expectancy to be marginally less worse than the Uniparty has managed to make it uh, in the last 40 years. So Trump was the only and so Trump was the only one. It was the shallow, blowhard, beauty pageant, reality show celebrity who was the only one who was talking about anything that mattered. That's on the political class. The political class, that's what Boris, to add another name, that's who Boris is a sort of uh, low-grade celebrity too in the UK. That's what he had going for him when he decided to make his leader, leadership bid uh, and, and uh, you know, get Brexit done as he campaigned. Well, now he failed on that. Uh, but the, but the point the the point is that the uniparty the professional politician has screwed everything. They've made this world for us. Doesn't really matter where you doesn't really matter where you live. There's an open border in America that if it goes on another couple of years will destroy America. You know, as a, as a, what what is it? He's he's let into the country now five million people, uh, and that's probably an underestimate too. So if you live in a small state, uh, you know, if you say live in Wyoming or Vermont, that's ten times the population of your state. You know, why do you think? Why do you think the uh, Democrats? want to abolish the uh, Electoral College and just have a straight up and down vote on who the president is. Because when you're letting five million uh, Democrat voters in waiting into the country every couple of years, you're, you're going to be out punch. You're, you out punch uh, New Hampshire. You out punch Maine. You out punch Vermont. Uh, the, these... Uh, that that's a huge that's a huge advantage to them. So uh, same thing in Canada, where as we see now, I, these these sort of sad little establishment Jews uh, in Montreal, absolutely bewildered by what's happened to their city, where there's madmen on the streets and they don't like to uh, go out wearing their kippers anymore. They thought they were the big shots. They were the ones holding all the, you know, the Canadian Jewish Association of Big Shot Jews scholars at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And suddenly they realize they're basically trying to hold a Canadian Association of Big Shot Jews gala uh, in, uh, in Hamas City.
Well, you supported parties that did all this. The Uniparty has wrecked the Western world. And, and the difference between, you know, whether America is more wrecked than France is just a matter of degree. Because they've all followed, the, the other odd thing about the Uniparty is they've all followed the same stupid policies, almost like they go to a, a meeting every year in, oh, you know, somewhere in, uh, maybe in the Swiss Alps, and get their marching orders. Very weird. Kelly Walter says, Mark, you often refer to the collapse of Western civilization. Could you elaborate on what you think that collapse will actually look like? I love my Stein hockey stick. I have it nestled above my American Gothic print on the wall of my office. I notice that the sticker says this is not a toy, so I wonder if I can use it for self-defense in the coming apocalypse. Praying for your health and for justice to be done in both of your legal cases. Yes, do indeed. It's going to get bad, and you will need what weapons you have to hand. So when the ammunition runs out, you will have to defend your homestead with the Stein Online hockey stick. Um, there's been a lot of changes in the Western world over the last half century. Uh, there are changes that uh, do not, you know, that are uh, structural and don't seem terribly obvious at the time, such as the fact that uh, all currencies now, whether you're talking about the dollar, the uh, euro, uh, sterling, they're all fiat currencies. Uh, so they're not pegged to anything real. So the point at which they go from real to unreal uh, can happen very fast and very convulsively. As I said, that's just like an economic thing, not terribly, uh, not of great interest to a lot of people until it happens. Then you have things that ought to be rather more obvious, which is the collapsed fertility rates, which because that's the most obvious vote in the future, is when you're confident enough about the future to have two, three, four, five kids. Uh, when you, uh, this is one of the great tragedies of the Ukraine war, for example, is that it's being fought between two countries with con collapsed birth rates. So they don't have a lot of so-called surplus manpower to throw into the fight. A lot of the grieving parents in uh, Ukraine and in Russia have lost their only child. That changes, you know, it, maybe it shouldn't, but it changes the calculus of war. It's one of the reasons why you fight war differently. We saw a very good example of it over 20 years in Afghanistan, where Western nations that dispatched uh, the only son of you know various American parents, uh, British parents, whatever, to, to that war zone, those parents lost their only child in Afghanistan. Whereas on the other side, uh, the goat herds with fertilizer side, those parents lost one of their seven sons. That changes the calculus. And I think that lack of young people, I notice this actually already when I'm in Europe. People I made this point, I think, with reference to the Bataclan, one of the perpetrators of the Bataclan slaughter a couple of years ago. 
And I was uh, walking around uh, Molenbeek in uh, Brussels and, you know, saw the place where his his family's flat, which was right across the square from the police station. And I did not believe that that guy could have holed up there for whatever it was, a year, the most wanted man in Europe, and his presence had been unknown to the police. And so then you start looking at the police officers start looking at the soldiers. And uh, I, I think of this every, every time I'm in France, for example. Um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, a significant proportion of the soldiers, and you see it in London too with the Metropolitan Police, a significant proportion of what we call, quote-unquote, the authorities are already, uh, are, are already Muslim. Simply because once they become a large enough minority to make demands, then the way you protect yourself in the Metropolitan Police at Scotland Yard is by finding some Muslim and uh, promoting him as fast as you can up the chain so you don't get accused of being racist for not promoting Muslims. Something similar happened, as you know, at the Minneapolis Police Department with that over-promoted Muslim police officer who shot that poor Australian lady. Uh, so when we talk about um, collapse... You know, it may be no, if you're lucky, it'll be no more than them going peacefully over to the other side. So again, as we already see in the, uh, in, in the uh, British Isles, the uh, First Minister of Scotland and the Mayor of London are Muslims. And, uh, and, you know, all that required is for Northern Ireland and Wales to get with the beat and then, you know, uh, everything will be fine and dandy. The alternative, which, you know, again, to come back to my line, I used to worry that there'd be a civil war. Now I worry that there won't be, is that people have to push back. They have to do what those Palestinian mobs on the streets do. They have to get out in the streets. Now, Rush used to say, oh, it's not worth getting out of the streets unless you can call out two million people. He was very skeptical about January the 6th because he didn't think there was any point to it unless there was a large enough number to scare the authorities. And he put a number of two million on it. Whatever number you want to put on it, you're not going to be able to vote your way because both, you know, right now in most Western democracies, you have a choice between a party that is openly in favor of open borders and another party that talks tough against open borders, but does bugger all about it. So you won't be able to vote your way out of this. What you've got to do is actually take to the streets. Now, people have been saying that this, the, the, the death of poor Thomas, a 16-year-old boy in a remote village who goes to a dance in the village hall and gets stabbed to death by marauders who come from the big town to this little village to uh, to basically enact a pogrom. And people say, oh, this is going to be the tipping point, le point de bascule for the French people. You know, it's like after 9-11 when people used to say, "It's go oh, yeah, okay, everyone's gone back to sleep now. It's going to take another 9-11. Well, just think about that. You're saying, okay, uh, killing 3,000 people 
doesn't persuade anyone to get serious. So maybe they'll get serious when you've killed another 3,000 people. But what if they don't? What if you're just no longer capable of getting serious? But that's, that's the thing. We are at the stage now after some of the things that have gone on around the West in these last, uh, whatever it is, four or five weeks, where we, you're not going to be able to vote your way out of it. You've got to go out on the street and, uh, and make a lot of noise. Jack says, Mark, is the current state of the West really as bad as it seems? Immigrant invasions, stolen elections, political prisoners, raped Jews, rampant money printing, dudes dominating female sports, technological suppression of free speech, and the Republican candidate for president facing life in prison. Seems horrible. But there are no civil wars, no monarchies collapsing, no wars among the core European countries, no widespread property takings, a la the Bolsheviks, and no widespread mass murder, a la Mao or Hitler or the Bolsheviks. So things can still get a lot worse. Maybe they are going to get worse. The question is always, and that's a reasonable question, um, the reason there are no monarchies collapsing is because uh, most of the monarchies have already collapsed uh, at the end of the First World War. But I, you know, I take your your I take your uh, general uh, point. I think they can get worse. I think the question as the uh, this this goes back to what uh, Kate Smythe was. Uh, I think a friend of hers put it this way. We were talking about it. Uh, I think almost exactly a year ago, was it? The controlled demolition of the Western world. That's what, they're, that's what is going on, and that's what people are trying to do. Switch, end freedom of movement, end freedom of speech, get us all eating insects uh, as a controlled demolition of the Western world. But as it advances the likelihood that they can retain control of the controlled demolition uh, lessens. And, and then what happens is that it becomes an uncontrolled demolition. And all the things you talk about, like widespread seizure of property and widespread... Ma I mean, for example, if you, if you think about what happened in that French village... You know, right now we we benefit both on in that French village and on the Rainbow Bridge uh, uh, over the Niagara River from the fact that these people who want to blow a sky high are not actually very good at it. So they go to the French village to stab a whole bunch of uh, white people and put them in the ground, as they said. Um but in the end, they succeed just in putting one poor 16-year-old boy in the ground because then they're, they're, they're not really very good. And, and in the case of the uh, guys on the Rainbow Bridge at Niagara Falls, they, they just blew themselves up and slightly wounded one border guard. They're not very good at it. The, the, the question to ask is, uh, which is really the question arising from October the 7th, when Hamas demonstrated a capability it had never shown before. The question is, what happens when they get good at it? 
And at that point, you know, seizing property and mass murder and all kinds of other things are going to come back into play again. But you should, you should, you, you know, you're talking about things that happened in the Western world, you know, uh, in the years between the two world wars. The fact of the matter is that population, it's not quite extinct, but it's putting itself out of business big time. And and so in some strange way, uh, they're not going to be the ones who determine the rules of the new conflict. It's going to be the uh, uh, it's going to be various other people. Uh, Bradford Stephen Kyle says, thanks for the Liberty Stick. This is my first one. Oh, they do love company. They're like those pandas at the Washington Zoo that uh, got shipped back to Chairman Xi. They they like they like a, a little bit of company. So get a boy Liberty Stick, get a girl Liberty Stick, and then just sit back and watch what happens. Uh, but thank you for that. The Liberty Sticks uh, are available at Stein Online. I uh, hand sign and number each one, and they are a, uh, a great gift for the liberty lover in your family, and they will help you hold, uh, hold on to it, uh, at least uh, uh, in part, as Winston Churchill advised the people of southern England when it looked like invasion was imminent, you can always take one with you. Ted Rathman of, uh, how do you pronounce that, Shilekill Sh- Sh- Haven, Pennsylvania? Uh, um, Ted, uh, Ted says, hi, Mark, first time questioner, long time listener. I'm thankful your health is prevailing. Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> and I'm praying you continue to gain strength daily as your courage and boldness are much needed these days. I'm reminded on this eve of Thanksgiving, the great sacrifices that were made by our ancestors in order that we might enjoy the civilization we now take for granted. I believe in this civilizational moment, we will need to make great sacrifices as well, sacrifices people are not prepared for. I'm wondering what sacrifices do you believe we will need to make in order to ensure our way of life prevails? What might we need to give up or go without? May the Lord bless you and keep you says the Reverend Ted Rathman. Well, these, you know, these are the the same things. People have to be prepared to fight for the same things they've fought for uh, throughout most of human history. We used to talk about this in the immediate aftermath of uh, 9-11. You know, when we, we, we were talking throughout the Western world, we were dealing with people who'd forgotten what it's like to have marauders uh, ride in and steal your crops and your livestock and your women folk. And it really, as again we saw in this French village, it's going to be as basic as that. This world, uh, this world in which we live in, (laughs) as Paul McCartney once wrote, is 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 a is a moment that cannot be held this idea for example that everything you need can be made for you by 
slave labor in a Chinese factory and that you can enjoy the benefits of it. You know, yeah, it's great. It's great to be able to go to Walmart, you know, and buy a pair of trousers for a buck thirty. But it is the price of that is too high. So that kind of con- the consumer lifestyle is going to be the one thing, this idea that life is no more than getting some Chinaman to make you a device on which you can watch some really groovy music video. That is such a perversion of the meaning of life that that has to be wholly sacrificed. You know, it is, it's always it's, it's interesting to me the the again this this french this french incident in a in a french village in the north drum it's not a, i know parts of la drome very well i don't know this part but it's just going on in the salle polyvalente the multi-purpose room where they hold the discos or whatever they call them nowadays and so there's a guy on the door these guys show up with 25 centimeter blades. You know, I, I had the great, well, I wouldn't call it a great privilege. He <laughs> didn't care much for me and we got into a bit of an argument. But this would be 20 years ago now. I got in, I, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Anna Lind, the Swedish foreign minister, and we had a rather convivial drink. Uh, or whatever, and she thought the Americans were bonkers, warmongers, all the rest of it. She was a Swede, so she was a more highly developed person than the average American. Blah, 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 blah. She goes back to Stockholm, gets stabbed to death in a department store. And I felt a bit sorry because I, you know, she she talked rubbish, but she was a very attractive Swedish blonde, and I'd enjoyed her company. And... Uh, Anna, uh, and thinking about the death of Anna Lind, I said somewhere at the time in the Telegraph or National Post or whatever it was that, you know, I would far rather face a gun than a knife. And I, I, I mean that, and I think most people would agree, you know, that if the knife uh, gets into you, it's going to do an awful lot of damage, whereas there's a sporting chance that some guy just loosing off bullets, yeah, it may hit you in the shoulder or whatever, but but uh, unless it happens to hit its target, it'll do less damage than someone hacking at you with a knife will. And I thought of that when I heard about this guy on the door, when these fellas turn up with their 25-centimeter, these machetes, basically, and he resisted them. And he tried to prevent them from entering. He basically, a guy stood there as the lone line of defense against a dozen fellows with machetes. And he's been cut up and uh, I believe he's survived and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, I'm, it's, it was a mad thing to do. In a sense, it's not a rational thing to do. An unarmed man when you're facing uh, 12 guys with machetes, you're not going to be able to keep them out of the room forever. But if you're brave enough, you can maybe keep them out long enough for some people to get away or out the back door or whatever. And that's what he did. And I'm always reassured by these 
tales of courage at a point where you ex- the, the state of the Western world as represented by our leaders is so effete and decadent that you assume the survival, the basic survival instinct has been lost. And I'm always encouraged when you hear it, uh, when you hear that it, it is, in fact, um, uh, it still exists and <clears throat> people are still willing uh, to fight for the ones they love. Keith Fowle says, so Liberty Stick number 138 lands safe and sound. I hope the same can be said for your good self, Mark. There are a plethora of lawsuits trying to get Trump removed from states' ballots, citing the 14th Amendment your own state of New Hampshire included. With the releasing of the January 6th footage, are these lawsuits now moot? The evidence of insurrection is surely falling apart quicker than Biden. Uh, No voice. Just let me take a sip of water. Um, (coughs) I don't think... I would be surprised... If these lawsuits go anywhere, uh, certainly in the state of New Hampshire. But the fact that they're now moot, you know, don't make any assumptions on that. A lot of the judiciary, as we see with this judge in New York, are prepared to torture the law uh, to support anything. And, you know, I'm sure they'd say, what, what's fascinating to me about my own case in New York, in uh, D.C., is that so much of the time is spent with the judges and lawyers arguing about, quote, what's admissible and what's inadmissible. You know, in other words, the main energy, organizational energy of the court and the lawyers is to excluding stuff. And I have no doubt that whatever leaks Uh, or releases of January 6th footage come out. It's a bit like my case in England. Basically, everything I said, with every passing week, everything I said on those shows Ofcom ruled against is proven true. The question when you're in these New York courts is whether reality is admissible. (laughs) Because that's the problem with the uh, American, uh, the American uh, citizen uh, system. Tony Allwright, Foundry Week member, usually in Dublin, currently in the Algarve, uh, writes about my uh, exclusive three-part video deposition under oath, which we posted here. He says, a couple of days ago, I drove 1,200 kilometres. That's 750 miles. You don't need Tony. You're, you you belong to the new Europeanized Ireland. You don't need to convert to miles for those of us insufficiently uh, hep to have got with the beat and uh, talking in kilometres. Uh, he drove 1,200 kilometres, says Tony, from Ireland to Portugal. <laughs> you know, they've got a, since I'm talking about that, my daughter and I drove uh, from uh, County Down uh, to a Newcastle County down to Dublin because I had a business meeting in Dublin. And when you're north of the border, uh, the signs are in miles, and I think they're blue. 
and it's called the M1. And then there's no border posts or anything. It's not like uh, the Rainbow Bridge. You just drive without any border posts. And suddenly the signs are in green, and then kilometres, instead of being called the M1, it's the E704, because the European Union, <laughs> they gave E numbers to all the roads. So in theory, the E704, you can drive direct <laughs> from Dundalk uh, all, all the, all the way to Odessa or wherever the E seven hundred and four ends, and <laughs> and so it's a great disappointment when you get to the end of the island of Ireland to find that the they haven't built a giant causeway connecting it to the Algarve for dear old Tony as he's uh, driving to Portugal. Anyway, he says, for most of my long solo drive, I was transfixed not by the speeding Iberian motorway traffic and spectacular scenery, blighted, by the way, by countless rotation-free wind turbines. Yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks they're building these wind turbines for wind energy, but they're going to be uh, hanging dissidents from them. That's the point of them, I think. Uh, but by your dulcet, if sometimes acerbic tones, as you responded to the questions, many of them absurd or repetitive, of Mr. Williams, Michael Mann's lawyer, I was particularly struck by your ability to instantly recollect so many diverse names, facts and figures, not to mention amusing anecdotes. Dr. Mann must have been squirming at all the insults leveled at him. At least I hope he was. So my question is, when will we view or listen to the sequel, i.e. Mr. Mann's own deposition under oath, where he is grilled for five odd hours by your lawyer? I'm hoping to enjoy that on my return drive to Dublin. Best regards and keep up the good fight. Well, we'll look into that. I'm not quite sure what the copyright situation uh, on that is um, I tell um, you know in, in the case of my deposition and and our video my I, I uh, think that it's you know my my position is that it's mine I'll have to have a look and see whether we can post uh, Michael Mann's one one more one final one Bill Decker says dear Mark I'm thankful for having you speak on so many important topics and that you are still well enough to continue the fight in the spirit of Rush and Andrew Breitbart do you feel the climate rhetoric and engagement of government and business was not a big issue before fracking and other advancements in gas and oil technologies made it possible for America to be energy independent and therefore less attached to the Middle East and other oil producing states. Uh, best wishes to you for improved health in the days ahead. Well, the climate thing comes and goes, waxes and wanes. Uh, you know, net zero is like an indulgence when times are good. When times aren't so good, people think, oh, hang on a minute, it's going to mean I don't have I don't get a motor car and I'm going to have to go and stand down by the bus stop and hope there's, you know, enough room for me to squeeze on to the one bus every two hours. Um, but the point the point about the Middle East oil potentates, these guys have nothing but oil. But that isn't their principal export. Again, it's a line from America alone. The principal export of Saudi Arabia, for example, is ideology. All the oil money does is fund the export of ideology. Now, uh, at that time, the second biggest supplier of energy to the United States after Saudi Arabia was the Canadian province of Alberta. Nobody bothers 
you know, for all I know, they might have bazillions of sheikhs in Alberta all over the place, but nobody bothers kissing up to them. You know, so the kiss-up aspect of it is necessary only with malign regimes. Uh, so if they're demanding the big kiss-up, you probably shouldn't be doing business with them anyway. The, the, the fact is um, th that, as Mrs. Neil Oliver likes to say, this, this whole stuff is a sleight-of-hand thing. As I said, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia's biggest export isn't oil, it's ideology. The oil just enables them to bankroll it. Likewise, as Mrs. Neil Oliver says, it's not about going green, it's going without. The climate change thing isn't intended to get to cheaper, more affordable, cleaner few forms of uh, energy. It's to ensure that uh, you live in a world without freedom of movement and uh, where you're living poorer, meaner lives. As that guy, Sorkin, whatever he's called, Andrew Ross Sorkin from the New York Times, we put, posted a little clip of it, of him saying it at the World Economic Forum. Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio and maybe even Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times because he's some trusty fundy type, uh, they'll be able to jet around the world uh, flying privately, uh, leading the lives they've always led. All it means is that you, Gladys Scroggins of 37B Elm Street, you won't be able to fly to Florida. Uh, you won't get two, two weeks off every year to go and see your grandkids in wherever. And instead of using the washer dryer in your laundry room, you'll be beating your clothes dry on the rocks down by the river. That's what they want. It's not about going green. It's about going without. Um, I have reached that stage in life uh, when there were far too many familiar names in the obituaries column every morning. Annabel Giles died on Monday, uh, far too young. She was diagnosed with a brain tumour just four months ago. A long, long time ago, Annabelle and I were part of the team on the BBC's Loose Ends show with Ned Sherin. The format was Posh Totty with Oiky Blokes. Uh, so there was Annabelle and Victoria Mather and Emma Freud and dear Carol Thatcher. And then Craig Charles, Robert Elms, Arthur Smith. Uh, and I got in, I don't think of myself as particularly oiky, but I'm a colonial, so apparently that makes me oiky by definition. Uh, the exception to the rule was Stephen Fry. And it was a wonderfully convivial show. And when it was over, we all repaired to the terrible local pub, The George, including all the celebs, whether Sting or Hermione Gingold, they'd all come along and get semi-rat-arsed. Um, Annabelle started as a model. She was the face of Max Factor and uh, a very beautiful face. And then she became a presenter and an actress and a novelist, rather good novelist, made me laugh out loud on planes and all kinds of other things. Almost everything she did, she succeeded at. She married and divorced a rock star, Midge Year of Ultravox, and was, until that turbo tumor showed up in July, a great survivor. Uh, once after the show in the pub, we were talking about education. 
And she said she'd left her girls' school at the age of 16. She'd snuck out, she hadn't meant to, she'd snuck out from the dorm after dark to go and see Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel live in Bristol. Nobody would call a band Cockney Rebel today because Cockneys are all but extinct in the new London, but it was a very plausible pop group name back then. Uh, So Annabelle was very crafty about all her sneaking and skulking to get into the gig, but it was such a great concert that she wanted to meet Mr Harley and his band afterwards. So in order to get his attention... (laughs) She came out and stood in the street looking all sultry and trying to smoke a cigarette like uh, Lauren Bacall. And uh, unfortunately, she was seen by someone from the school and they expelled her. But it was worth it because the band played their latest hit. What was it the exasperated headmistress said to her? You've done it all. You've broken every code. You've done it all. Nothing left All gone and run away Maybe you'll tarry For a while It's just a test A game for us to play Win or lose It's hard to smile Resist, resist Maybe you'll try 
a song worth getting expelled for. Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel in 1975. Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me, written by Steve Harley and produced by Alan Parsons. Before the Alan Parsons Project, for all you Austin Powers fans, a much Recorded song uh, by Duran Duran, Erasure, but that is the original. Number one in the UK, number five in the Netherlands, number seven in Belgium, number 15 in South Africa, number 17 in Australia, number 20 in West Germany, but in America. It could do no better on the Billboard Hot 100 than number 96. In memory of my loose ends comrade Annabelle Giles, who died on Monday. Annabelle and Steve Harley and that song remind me of happier times on the telly, on radio and in life. They indeed make me smile. Stick with Stein Online. Laura's link's coming up tomorrow. Laura Rosen-Cohen rounds up the internet as nobody else can. And don't forget our annual Thanksgiving edition of The Mark Stein Show. Don't leave it too late to snaffle up one of our limited edition Stein Online Liberty Sticks. They're going fast, and when they're gone, they're gone. Stay safe, stay free, stay well, and happy Thanksgiving. Bubbland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.